you're seated, and if you haven't already, let's go ahead and take those Bibles and open them up to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Even though we're all aware, even though we know that someday life is going to end, someday we're all going to die, I think if we're honest, there are many times where we just have trouble just believing that reality. Yet there are times when death confronts us in a personal and powerful way that we cannot deny the reality that life comes to an end. Maybe it happens when you hear the news of a passing celebrity, the news circulating yesterday of Bob Barker's passing at the age of 99. Maybe that triggers moments in your life where you reflect upon your own mortality. Perhaps it's when you attend the funeral service of a loved one or a family friend, or maybe it's when you visit a graveside or when you have to pull over to the side of the road as another funeral procession passes by. Whatever it is, in these moments of clarity, we're suddenly reminded that life comes to an end. And this reality changes everything, or at least it should change everything. And so the preacher who wrote Ecclesiastes had a moment of clarity about so much related to life and death. And so what we have before us are some of his reflections as he considered the meaning and the significance of life. Earlier in this chapter, he'd been thinking about the power that's possessed by those in authority in verses 2-7. through seven. In verse number 8, he'd been reflecting upon God's sovereignty over life and death. As he was thinking about these things, he's, he thought about them because he wanted to know the wise way to live one's life. Even when there's good laws, even when we have fine people who are either elected or selected to carry out and enforce those laws, there are so much injustice in this world, much more than I think we'd often care to admit. And if we're not careful, this can lead us to become cynical when it comes to the concept of justice. For instance, There's a Spanish proverb that says, Laws, like a spider's web, catch the fly and let the hawks go free. It was the famous defense attorney, F. Lee Bailey, that said, In America, an acquittal doesn't mean you're innocent. It means you just beat the rap. Robert Frost, the American poet who wrote classics like uh, The Road Not Taken. He defined a jury as 12 persons chosen to decide who has the better lawyer. You can see how sometimes when we get frustrated with the judicial system, it can cause us to become cynical. Death has a way of bringing perspective to life. Charles Spurgeon said that the sight of a funeral is a very healthful thing for the soul. And so we pick up this morning in verse number 10. And there the preacher obviously has attended a funeral or he's reflecting upon that 
experience. And he says in verse number 10, So then, I have seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they are soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. This too is futility. Now, if you have a different translation than mine, yours might read slightly differently, which is interesting. Uh, reading from the New American Standard, mine says that they are soon forgotten. If you're reading from the ESV or I think the NIV, maybe the New Living Translation says that uh, they are praised. Hey, let's just show of hands. Let's see who wins among us. Your Bible, your translation that you're looking at right now, does your say that they are soon forgotten? Raise your hand. Wow, only very few of us. Yours say uh, they're praised or Okay, so then the rest of you don't have a Bible? (laughs) We can help you with that. The Hebrew text of this verse is difficult and could mean either that the, the wicked were praised by others or that their wicked deeds were forgotten by others, which would mean that that the people chose to ignore their obvious wickedness. Either way, rather than being called to account and receiving judgment for their sin, the wicked received an honorable burial. The preacher is reflecting upon this. He realizes that funeral services for the just and the unjust were equally treated with the same kind of honor. And so the overriding theme seems to be that the wicked do not appear to get what they deserve, not just in life, but even in death. And so as he reflected on the matter, the preacher realized that the the wicked had continued in sin because they thought that they were getting away with it. Verse number 11, it says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore... The hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. In other words, when when justice is slow or when justice is inconsistently executed, people become emboldened to break the law. I mean, this should be obvious to the judicial systems of the world, but it appears as though it's not so obvious to them. Justice is designed to be a deterrent to crime. And so here we get an ugly glimpse at the total depravity of the human heart. You see, if evil deeds were punished immediately, then people would be discouraged from pursuing wickedness. But justice is often painfully slow. So slow that some people think that they could get away with whatever they want to do and avoid any consequences to their behavior. But may we never forget that in His time, the Lord will vindicate the righteous and He will judge the wicked. The reason why God does not throw thunderbolts from the sky the very moment of sin is simply because He is so loving and so patient. Scripture tells us in Exodus chapter 34, verse number 6, that God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness 
and truth. You see, his patience isn't for nothing or no reason. No, his patience has a purpose. The second Peter chapter three, verse number nine reveals that purpose. It says that the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. See, God's patient in order to allow for the opportunity for repentance to occur. And so the proper way to respond to God's patient delay is to repent and to turn unto Him. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 2, verse number 4. And he says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. But unfortunately, too many people abuse the patience of God, making it an excuse for their immorality. You see, in this under the sun thinking, in this thinking apart from, from God, there is no justice and life is not fair. But what we're going to see is a transition in uh, the preacher's writing because what follows takes the understanding from having under the sun thinking to having thinking that is above the sun. Thinking that that has an eternal perspective. He says in verse number 12, Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear Him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man And he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. There is futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of righteous. I say that this too is futility. You see, when when faced with the injustice all around us, we must hold dear to the promise that God has triumphed through His Son. And in the end, evil will be perfectly punished. So although the preacher knows that this world is full of injustice, he also believes in the final justice of God. So, so things will not turn out well for the wicked. Whether they sin a hundred times, whether they sin a thousand times, there are no blessings for the wicked beyond the grave. And so if you're troubled by the suffering of the righteous, or if you're troubled by the prosperity of the wicked, may you know, according to the preacher, although a sinner does evil a hundred times, and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear Him openly. You see, when when death knocks on the door of the wicked, they they will stand before God, and they will be righteously judged and justly punished. Likewise, when death knocks on the door for those who fear God, 
they too will stand before the Lord, but they will be warmly received and justly rewarded. Even if they suffered greatly in this lifetime, even if their lives are cut short in this world, they, they have the privilege, the honor, the glory of being able to spend eternity free from the penalty of sin, free from the practice of sin, free from the presence of sin. What a glorious blessing for those that believe. Verse number 13 tells us that the evil man will not get even one more day than God gives him. He says it like this. He says that he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. You see, the shadow lengthens at the end of the day. But the wicked cannot prevent the nightfall of death. The lives of the wicked are mere shadows having no substance whatsoever. And each day draws them closer to eternal darkness and doom. And although the lives of evildoers may be lengthy, they will not go on indefinitely. It will not endure forever. According to God's schedule, according to His timing, according to His plan and to His purpose, the wicked ultimately will be cut off. God's judgment will come upon them and they and all of their wicked deeds will come to an end. So the preacher comes to the conclusion that the wicked will eventually be judged and the righteous will eventually be rewarded. So it is better to fear the Lord and to live a godly life. So the preacher summarizes the analysis of life's injustices. And he summarizes it with one beautiful, broad statement. And that's in verse number 14. That statement, he says that there is futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this too is futility. In other words, what he's saying is that the righteous often get what the wicked deserve and the wicked often receive what the righteous deserve. That is life under the sun. And so this element of injustice adds to futility. It adds to the frustration that we experience in life. It is another of the conditions of life being lived under the sun. And if we're not careful, then then our confusion and our frustration over this reality can rob life of its meaning, of its purpose, and of its satisfaction. So appropriately, the preacher closes the chapter with a reminder for us all to enjoy the life that God has given us. Verse 15, he says, So I uh, commended pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry. And this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. This is the fourth time 
The fourth time that the preacher has told us to enjoy life and, and to, to delight oneself with the fruit of their labors. He, he says it here in our text in chapter 8. The first time goes back to chapter 2, verse number 24. He said it again in chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. And then the third time was uh, chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. So four times he has told us to enjoy life and to take delight in the blessings of God. Remember, this is not an encouragement to pursue the foolish philosophy of an unbelieving hedonist. No. Rather, what he's talking about is the positive faith outlook of a child of God. It's recognizing that life is a special gift given unto us by our Heavenly Father. And living life means that we go through this blessing, giving God all the glory, understanding that He blesses us richly. In fact, Scripture says that all things richly to enjoy. Paul writes these words in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse number 17. And there he says to instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. In other words, our focus and our attention should be upon our Heavenly Father. And should we, we should enjoy the blessings in which He has given and extended unto us. And so instead of complaining about the things that we don't have, we ought to give thanks for the things that we do have and enjoy those things as blessings from our Father. It's tempting to give in to cynicism and despair as we observe the injustices of life under the sun. But even in the midst of unfairness, in the midst of injustice, we're to recognize the positive elements of our lives that are in and of themselves a gift from God. So in light of the evil and the unjust conditions of our world, there is nothing better that we can do than simply to appreciate and enjoy what God has given unto us. And so eating and drinking refers to the simple pleasures and the necessities of life. The joys that God grants us in spite of all of life's evils. And so if we truly trust God, if we truly walk in faithfulness as we go about our duties and our responsibilities, then we can have peace in knowing that the joy of the Lord will fill our hearts regardless of our circumstance, regardless of the situation, regardless of what is happening all around us. And so, at the end of a lifetime of study, of a lifetime of experimentations and research, the, the preacher's conclusion is pretty clear. No matter how hard we try, we cannot find all of the answers to all of life's questions. No matter how hard we try, we cannot solve all of life's problems. You see, some things are beyond our ability to understand. 
some things are, are mysteries that are beyond our ability to comprehend. No one, not even the wisest one among us, no one can know everything about all things. And so one of the great underlying themes of Ecclesiastes is, is the theme about the sovereignty of God. And so while we may be frustrated, while we may be concerned about the injustice or the unfairness that we see in this world, in the end, God's justice and His righteousness will prevail. And so although we cannot always see God at work in our world, we can have confidence in knowing that God is sovereign and God has everything under His control. And so through many difficult days and sleepless nights, the preacher applied himself diligently to the mysteries of life. And so notice his conclusion, verse number 16. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on the earth, even though no one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though men should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. Whenever Ecclesiastes speaks about the work of God or of what God does, it's referring to God's work of providence. More specifically, it refers to the regular, daily working of God's providence in the ordinary lives of men and women. The, the, the daily working of God that is often so difficult for us to fully grasp or comprehend. And so, ultimately, the preacher is saying, instead of rejecting wisdom, no, his conclusion is that wisdom is important to the person who wants to gain the most that there is to gain out of this life. And so while wisdom cannot explain every mystery, although it cannot solve all problems, it can help us exercise discernment, exercise discernment in everyday decisions. That's why he says that there is a time and a plan for everything. Proper godly wisdom will help us to understand the timing and the plan for all things if we'll just turn to him. I can't help but study through the book of Ecclesiastes, and through when working through the text, I'm often so reminded of the beautiful promise that's given to us in the book of James. And so I'll, I'll end with this thought for today. The beautiful promise comes from James chapter 1, verse number 5. There it says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to Him. Notice the wonderful promise made when we ask God for wisdom. The promise is, God will give you wisdom. Not only that, God will give you a liberal amount of wisdom. God will give you an abundance of wisdom. 
But not even that. God will not reproach or rebuke you for asking for wisdom. He'll not scold you for not knowing what to do or how to do it. No, the idea is that God will not even questioning us about us lacking wisdom in that situation. God will not scold us. He will not reprimand us. He will not question us for not knowing what to do or not knowing how to do it. He says, if you'll turn to me and you'll ask, man, I'll give it. I'll pour it out in your life. And so close with this thought, see, when we go through the trials of life, when we get frustrated with our circumstance or our situation, when we find it hard to see God working and moving among us, and when we experience these, these frustrating seasons, we're often reminded of just how limited we are in our own strength. In our own strength. You see, on our own, we do not know all that there is to know. On our own, we have limited knowledge. On our own, we often fail to see the situation or the circumstance from other perspectives. You can't see the forest because of the trees, right? The old saying, right? You get so fixated on the problem, you can't see anything else. And so on our own, we have a limited perspective. On our own, we often lack the skills or the understanding of what to do or how to do it. So we have limited knowledge, limited perspective, and limited experience. (laughs) But God, on the other hand, no, God possesses all knowledge. God, our Father, has the perfect perspective. And in Christ Jesus, He has experienced every kind of trial and has prevailed. Therefore, this should give us great confidence because no one is better equipped to guide and direct our lives than our Heavenly Father. James 1.5 is the most encouraging promises in Scripture, at least to me. You see, God gives wisdom. And He gives it generously, liberally, abundantly, faithfully he pours it out without discrimination without hesitation without questions think of it like this the god of the universe the possessor of all knowledge the one who has the eternal perfect perspective the one that has all the experience there is to have he is saying you need help I got you. Now, I might not remove the obstacle from your life, but you've turned to me. I can help you. I can help you understand what to do or what to say or how to do something. Oh, I can give you the right perspective to have on your situation. Not only that, I can walk with you through the storm of your life and you're not alone. He's the one that says, if you lack, I got you. I got you. As children of God, may we cling to that promise. May we faithfully and consistently turn unto Him, asking Him for the wisdom, asking Him to know, how do we see this from your point of view, God? 
What does your word tell us about this situation? And how can I act and how can I respond in a way that honors and glorifies you? You might not know everything there is to know about all things. That's okay. In your circumstance, in your situation, if you will turn to God, He's got you. Every single time. And what a beautiful reminder that is about the loving kindness and the faithfulness of our Heavenly Father. Oh, that we would stop trying to figure out this life on our own strength. Because on our own, we don't do a very good job. We'll mess up. We'll wreck the situation or make it even worse. But may we faithfully and consistently turn to our Father, trusting in Him, relying upon Him, so that he might guide and direct us in all things and in all ways. Let's pray, church. Father, I do thank you for your love, for your faithfulness. God, for your, for your generosity and blessing us with wisdom. Father, there is frustration, confusion, pain, a lack of understanding in this room about our situation and about our circumstance that we're dealing with. Some of us are, are keeping the, the problems of our lives so well hidden from other people. Some of us are merely just going through the motions in this moment, Father. Father, I pray that we would stop that. I pray that we would remove that mask from our lives. Father, I pray that we would be honest about who we are and what we're doing. God, may we be a, a, a community of believers that will love one another, encourage one another, walk with one another, assist one another to do whatever it takes, Father, that we might live in faithful obedience unto you. In your spirit, pray that the Holy Spirit would take your word and rightly apply it to our hearts and to our lives. For decisions to be made in this moment, Father, whatever they are, decisions to repent and turn to you for the salvation of souls, to, to confess sin and to walk in a newness of life, whatever that is, Father, in this moment, I pray that we would focus upon what we need to do to be right with you and not upon anything else. So as we sing through this song of reflection, Father, may you be honored and glorified in the response of your people. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.